What we'd like to do tonight is try to provide at least a partial antidote for thanatophobia, or the fear of dying. It's a little trickier than you might think, though. For example, let's say someone was afraid of flying. You'd probably tell them that what they're afraid of won't happen, that crashes are extremely rare, and that you're more likely to get in an accident on the way to the airport than in the plane. But with death, it's gonna happen at some point. There's no doubt about it. So how is that not scary? It all has to do with what actually happens during death. What if death is not the lonely, painful fading out it seems to be? What if the experience is full of love, care, safety, and the beginning of something more wonderful than we can imagine? If that's the case, then the question isn't, how can we not fear death? It's, why would you be afraid of something like that? Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's another episode of Swedenborgian Life. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be looking at the dying process from the other side. What's the actual experience of going through it and what what happens after it? So if you want to take that journey, you're in the right spot. My name is Curtis Childs and I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation. All these shows are based on digging into the recorded spiritual experiences of Emanuel Swedenborg. And if you haven't heard of him before, you'll know a good deal about the content before the end of the night, but you can just always click the books, download it for free, check it out yourself. If you want to get your questions in, do it. If you're watching live, questions and comments, we want to hear what you're thinking, what experiences do you have to share, and all we'll try to answer them the best that we or I can at the end of it. So let's take a look and see if we can't... Death is one of the things people are the most worried about, and one of the things that impacts people the most intensely. If you ask people for defining moments in their lives, a lot of the time, it's somebody, somebody's going. And that's, that sticks out because it's so intense. And can we not trivialize it, but make some kind of headway into lessening sort of the pain and despair and adding a little bit of hope and, and peace into the whole thing? So that's what we're going to take a look at now. And we're going to begin with part one. So something happened to me just uh, just a few days ago. Uh, so I was near my house. There's a plant, a milkweed plant, and on it I found uh, a caterpillar. It was great. This it was a cute one of those huge, cool-looking caterpillars, and it was crawling around. It was eating these the plant. It was the coolest thing. I could go up and see its little mouth moving on there, and I would just go out every day. It would be on. It'd hang out on the same plant. I'd I'd get to go see it every day. It was great. It was like a pet, like an outdoor pet. But bad news. I came out one day and it was gone. It was totally gone, and there was just this thing uh, in its place. And I thought, okay, maybe it just rolled up, curled up in there, like that's its little house. But I have this this these little X-ray binocular things, and I looked in there, and it's liquid. You know, the caterpillar is completely gone. So that's all a lie. That never happened. But we know the next step in that story, right? I mean, the caterpillar is is gone in a way. I'm not going to be able to come and see him anymore. It's a change, but but he's not obliterated. That, that caterpillar is moving on to be this butterfly that is going to have this kind of life that, that he could never dream of as a caterpillar. And while my relationship to him is going to change, I can know that he's off flying, seeing these amazing things. So that brings us to this idea that, that we are the butterfly. I mean, Swedenborg and many others use this as a metaphor for eternal life. And um, 
with Swedenborg, it's not just a metaphor, it's a correspondence, meaning this is an actual external physical expression of the states of mind we go through, that, that what we are in in this world is just like a caterpillar perspective. You know, low to the ground, you only see a small patch of area as compared to a butterfly, where you've you got this perspective, you've got um, movement, and you, you, some butterflies, monarchs, can go across continents. Uh, so there's so much more to see and, and go do. So hopefully we can show tonight that that's, that's the real story. It doesn't end with the cocoon. Our physical bodies, according to Swedenborg and many others, die, but we don't. And this is something that he gets at in his book, Heaven and Hell 445. So click this thing, download it. Oops, sorry, Mike. Download it for free, ebook or PDF, and so you can read the numbers around it if you want to hear more about it. He says, when somebody's body can no longer perform its functions in the natural world in response to the thoughts and affections of its spirit, which it derives from the spiritual world, then we say that the individual has died. This happens when the lungs breathing and the heart's systolic motion have ceased. The person, though, has not died at all. We are only separated from the physical nature that was useful to us in the world. The essential person is actually still alive. I say that the essential person is still alive because we are not people because of our bodies, but because of our spirits. After all, it is the spirit within us that thinks, and thought and affection together make us the people we are. We could see then that when we die, we simply move from one world into another. And that's where there's a Facebook page that the Swedenborg Foundation runs called Heaven and Hell. And we always have that quote as our banner. It's sort of like what the whole page started with. And this is a this is a, an idea that, that the soul can travel on independent of the body. It's not it's across everywhere. It's su- such a part of the cultural mindset. You'll even see it in bumper stickers, which is when you know you've made it. We're spiritual beings having a physical experience. And so the physical experience of this particular bumper sticker is that it's been through a lot, and it's breaking down. However, the spirit of the bumper sticker, the, the idea it's expressing, that's just as potent and as vibrant as ever. It wouldn't matter how much this thing got messed up, the idea behind it stands, and there's an idea behind each of us. It's, it's a complex idea. It's what each of us love most deeply. It's who we are, but that survives the death of the body. You know, the body is great, a great vehicle, but it's not how, uh, it's not how the movie ends for us. And you see this across all kinds of sources, near-death experiences. You're probably familiar with those if you're watching this. There have been a lot of books written on these incredibly common experiences reported where your body's getting close to dying and you have this journey that you're suddenly out of that. You're experiencing all these things, even while your body can be under great physical stress. However, um, let's start with the problem because... We're going to assert on this show today, as we said in the intro, that, that er- everything's good, like, like that everything is, is safe and loving during the dying process, but you'll get some people who have these near-death experiences, and they see something frightening, or they see some kind of hellscape, or they're confronted by antagonistic forces, so how can you say that, they, that those kind of scenarios aren't waiting for all of us. Well, I think we can find a hint about that in um, a study overall of the the phenomena of near-death experience and the impact it has. This is from a book called Blessings in Disguise, which is kind of this, which is this um, research report. Uh, this is by Barbara Romner. 
And she said, I suggest that we can predict a less than positive near-death experience, especially knowing the person's unique past and his or her representational model of the world. It is almost as if the phenomenon is a particular kind of growth that allows for a course correction, enabling the individual involved to focus on whatever is weak or missing in character development. It has been my experience that whatever we need to awaken the truth of our being will manifest when we need it. We had a guy that we interviewed on this show known, named Howard Storm, very famous near-death account that he wrote down, and it had a lot of negativity in the beginning, but he said this was part of what I needed to, to get to the place where I needed to go, because near-death experiences are exactly that. They happen and you continue to live, and it seems that a lot of times they're, they're um, constructed to have an impact on the rest of the person's life here. But what we're going to talk to you about today is Swedenborg's experience not of a near death, but being shown the actual process. He seemed confident that he was being taken by these guiding spiritual forces and shown this is what it's like when we don't just get close to dying, but when we actually die. So if you'll, if you'll come with us on that trip, we're actually going to pull it out of two places in his books, because you'll find he actually repeats things in different areas. And here for a little commentary on that is our friend Cara Dom, who's a Latin consultant translating Swedenborg's works. Anyone who begins to read a lot of Swedenborg's work might find themselves having a sort of deja vu feeling. And that is because he does repurpose a lot of his material. It is repeated here and there throughout his opus. A lot of the times it's these memorable relations or narrative accounts that show up in different volumes. There's a lot of this repeated material. It's referred to as parallel passages or repeated passages. And back in the late 1800s, John Faulkner Potts made an index of all the places that these occur, and people have worked on it since. There's enough occurrences of reused material that it's a thing. When the material reappears, it is not always exactly the same as the first time you saw it. You can see the editing process. It's similar, but it's not exact. And sometimes there are very interesting details that only occur in one of the accounts. So we're going to give you two accounts of the dying process that Swedenborg records, one in Heaven and Hell, one in Secrets of Heaven, because they each have little uh, tangents and things that we want to get at. So let's look first at Heaven and Hell. This is from 448. He says, I have not only been told how the awakening happens, I have been shown by firsthand experience. The actual experience happened to me so that I could have a full knowledge of how it occurs. It's a, there was a purpose. He wasn't just, just like, what do you want to do today? Oh, show me that. He was meant to dictate this stuff to us. I mean, to whoever picked up his books and started reading it. So here's a little bit on how the whole thing, how that, how could he have this experience? How could he both be dying and be conscious that he was dying? This is Secrets of Heaven 169. He says, I was brought into a state in which I was unaware of physical sensation, almost into the condition of someone who is dying. My inner life and thinking remained unimpaired, however, so that I would perceive and remember what was happening. I underwent the same experiences as those who have died and are being revived. So there w he was lucid during the whole thing. It's not like there was a blackout period or wait, oh, suddenly I'm here. He knew I'm going in. Okay. And there was this reporter part of him that remained active and conscious and with it in that part remembered and then wrote it down. And he says in the process of crossing over, for everybody, no matter what kind of person we are, no matter what we believe, circumstances aside, 
there's this love and this protection in the process. And we're going to see how that operates starting now. Let's look at part two. When we had Raymond Moody on the show, not that I'm just trying to name drop, but those are our only two names, Raymond Moody, Howard Storm. So I dropped them both. Sorry about that. But we had Raymond Moody on the show because he was working on a project who that that had to do with the words of the dying. And a lot you hear this sort of travel language that this the title of this section is based on. And you'll see this come up again later in the in the section. So stay tuned, man, for that. We're looking at the stage now where the spirit disconnects from the body. So we're going to return to heaven and hell 446. The deepest communication of our spirit is with our breathing and our heartbeat. Thought connects with our breathing and affection, an attribute of love with our heart. You could love and the heart are always connected, but not as commonly thought with the breathing. Swedenborg says how we breathe affects how we think a lot. Consequently, when these two motions in the body cease, there is an immediate separation. It is these two motions, the respiratory motion of the lungs and the systolic motion of the heart, that are essential ties. Once they are severed, the spirit is left to itself, and the body, being now without the life of its spirit, cools and decays. In case you're more visual than word dull, we have a diagram here for you that lays that out. Um, affection connects to the motion of the heart, thought connects to the motion of the lungs, and th- this correspondence, Swedenborg goes on and on about this in his book, Divine Love and Wisdom, because the two basic elements of God are love and wisdom. And so these two organs with us, within us are like the, the first interceptors of this, these two channels from God. He says, in there, there is a picture, the, heart, the way the heart and lungs support each other is a picture of the the marriage of goodness and truth, or the deepest connection in the universe. That is heaven in form there. So you're all walking around with that inside your chest. Be proud of it. Use it for good. This is Heaven and Hell 447. We're going to continue the story. After this separation, our spirit stays in the body briefly, but not after the complete stoppage of the heart, which varies depending on the cause of death. We don't, you know, he could be talking about the beating of the heart or this like microscopic, uh, you know, electrochemical or whatever motion in there. He doesn't specify because, you know, some people can be revived after the heart is stopped. In some cases, the motion of the heart continues for quite a while, and in others, it does not. The moment it does stop, we are being awakened, but this is done by the Lord alone. Being awakened means having our spirit led out of our body and into the spiritual world, which is commonly called resurrection. The reason our spirit is not separated from our body until the motion of the heart has stopped is that the heart answers to affection, an attribute of love, which is our essential life, since all of us derive our vital warmth from love. Consequently, as long as this union lasts, there is a responsiveness, and therefore the life of the spirit is still in the body. So it's there's a, a particular reason why the spirit is tied to the body and why it doesn't take off until the, the bo- there's an order to the taking off. The body has to be in a particular state for this final exit. People can travel in their spirit all the time, and Swedenborg did without any stoppage of the heart, but to really, like, punch out, you got to have this. So people, people actually can help this process on this side. We're going to be looking at the angels. We, this wasn't a, like a bait-and-switch that, like, hey, we're talking about angels in the title, but we don't mention them in this show. We're going to talk a lot about angels, and we want to also talk about the parallels on this side, because we can actually 
assist the process, do the function that the angels are doing on that side, on this side. And the more we know about how those angels operate, then the more we know about the best ways we can approach it here. So we want to look at people who are already involved in helping people during the dying process, and we just happen to know people who know people. So uh, I talked to my uncle, uh, who was a chaplain at a hospital. He actually wrote a booklet for the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. It's called Developing Resilience While Caregiving Under Stress. It's essentially how do you take care of people without it draining you as well you know, in, in intense times such as this. But also, he just happened to be uh, theologically trained as a Swedenborgian minister. So we both had the, the knowledge of what Swedenborg said about the other side and the living experience of this side. So we asked him, what, what similarities do you see between what goes on where we are and what goes on in Swedenborg's descriptions? I work as a hospice chaplain full-time and part-time I work in an ICU at a cancer hospital. So I see a lot of transition between here and heaven. And I get to work with people who are incredibly skilled at helping that to happen at this end in a peaceful and pain-free way. And I know because I've also worked as a pastor in a Swedenborgian church, I know the teachings about what the jobs of angels are at the other end. And it's interesting as I think about it, the main job of the first set of angels that watch over us while we're in a deep sleep is to try to keep our feelings in a really safe and happy place. It's to keep us in loving thoughts and feelings about all the best ideas we've had about the afterlife. And that's kind of neat because in the work I do, I get to work with these amazing nurses. They could be bringing babies into the world, but they choose to help to usher people into the next life and make life comfortable for them. So I'm working with astounding nurses, uh, and they communicate a lot of love. Yes, they watch their medicine to make sure they're not in pain. They uh, watch and help out in every way they can, medically speaking. But a lot of what they do is provide love for the patient and attention for the family members. Just like it's about love for the highest angels, it's also about love in every role that's filled in our hospice work. And I think about these higher angels steering us into these loving, peaceful feelings. And what a wonderful parallel that is at both ends. If the two sides of the veil are really getting that close, at this moment, you have like parallel functions like he's talking about. That would explain why it's so common for people who are in these last few days of life to start reporting spiritual experiences. And Robin told us a little bit about what it's like uh, to see that happening. It's also a really precious time of life when a person's drifts to that point of no longer being conscious and then they're conscious again. They're often communicating with loved ones who've crossed over to come near to them to help them and welcome them and get them excited about crossing. And you'll hear them waking up from being under, and I mean under, sometimes unconscious, and they'll come out and say, oh, I saw my brother and my mother and my father and tell you all about the wonderful visits they had. Some of them, you'll be in the room, and because they're able to see sometimes with the eyes of their spirit, even though they're still in their body, they, we had one case where a, a uh, patient looks consistently at their mother, their father, the sister who had passed away 10 years ago, and that the mother-in-law 
father-in-law and the brother from that family who had passed away, consistently addressing each one. Um, so there's a lot of remarkable stories. So I would just say it's a really precious time. And if you hear your loved one talking about seeing other people, please don't be alarmed. It's just God's way of getting them ready. They'll often talk about really interesting um, metaphors like, is my luggage packed? Um, my uh, mother-in-law would talk about her luggage a lot and she worked for the airlines and she traveled for almost free all over the world with my wife, Suzanne. And she would always, is, is my luggage ready? Yeah, mom, your luggage is ready to go. We're all set. So it's really just a precious time and to not ever worry about someone seeming like they're delusional when they could be more aware of things than you are. Sometimes they're looking through us, sometimes they look at us. Uh, I once said to a hospice patient, are you seeing your family? And he was staring straight ahead at someone. He, he turned to me and looked at me and locked eyes in this world to look at me and nod and then looked at his, back at his family. I said, well, that's great. Don't be afraid to go to them. Uh, so it's just such a precious time. And thanks to medication and all the love in a hospice environment uh, or a hospital setting where there's dedicated nurses and uh, doctors and people who wash the body and people who bring in food for everybody. Um, it's really a beautiful process. There's just an uh, ocean of love here and an ocean of love there. It's, it's really an amazing thing. How do we increase that ocean of love on this side? There have been studies showing that actually singing is an important part of the whole thing. There's an article we got, uh, we looked up in, that NPR did uh, about these groups that go and sing to calm uh, people who are, have terminal illness. And we wanted to look into it more, and it just so happens that we know people who know people. So our own friend Chelsea, who writes for our show, she was once involved in a group, sort of an impromptu group, that went and sung to someone, and we wanted to just ask her a little bit about what's the process like, and what does that bring to the situation? How do you, how are we up in the love by the, the, the singing near the end of life? So here's what she had to say. A woman in the community, um, who I know, an older woman, had had a stroke, and she was then in the hospital um, in a coma, and um, this woman was, she's somebody who was really well known in our community. She wrote songs, she loved theater. I had heard that she was now in the hospital and another woman in the community posted uh, saying the idea of like, what if we got a group of us together to go to her hospital room and sing to her? Um, you know, they didn't know how much time she had, but she was unresponsive at this point. I signed up and we were given the hospital room number and I think asked to bring a liturgy and so and it was just meet there at this time and so I remember driving there and parking in the parking garage and finding my way to the right hall and then you know I was just there on my own with my you know liturgy under my arm and I hear the ding of a of the elevator and the doors open and a bunch of other people from the community come in holding their liturgies and it just felt like the sweetest and gentlest flash mob. <laughs> so like to all be just showing up to be present to this woman. It was just such a special sphere 
to be um, singing the songs, you know, just an impromptu choir with some of the people I knew, some of the people I didn't know as well. And the family members got to just be there and listen. And she was on the bed, you know, unresponsive. But I've heard that, um, you know, hearing is one of the last senses to go. So, so even it, you know, you, there was a sense that you knew something was being communicated. And not only that, but with this uh, knowledge and sense of the reality of the spiritual world and the angels that are meeting us on the other side and wanting to support our transition, it just felt like we were singing this song, these songs, and then getting to sort of pass pass the, the torch onto the angels who I feel like would be just picking up the song and, and singing. When it seemed like it was time to be done, we all just went our ways, gave hugs, and uh, and then I heard that she passed away in the next few days. And some of that, that community and communication that Chelsea is talking about, the, the, the coming together to know things uh, about life after death and how that can matter in these scenarios, this is actually taken to almost an extreme in a near-death experience that was written down by our friend Howard Storm, who I mentioned we'd had on the program. And he was shown during his experience a vision of a future for humanity, a potential future. And we're going to read you a little quote out of his book here. Um, He said, this is from uh, My Descent into Death and the Message of Love, which brought me back. is a great book, one of the first ones that I read for near-death stuff. When people were satisfied, so this is in the future, when people were satisfied, they had all the life experience they needed, the community gathered together around them. They had a celebration while such a person lay down, and his or her spirit moved to heaven. This was the cause of great rejoicing. People were born, grew, learned, and died. They lived to love God, love one another, and to love themselves. This is the potential. And in his account of the future, there's open communication with the afterlife. So somebody dies, you really can check back in with them. And this is incidentally how Swedenborg says it used to be back in the dawn of of humanity. There was this. We have since closed off, but we we can be headed back to that. So that's the potential for knowledge about the afterlife to completely change what it is to die and to know someone who dies. So hopefully we're on our way there. When we get there, each individually, to this process, Swedenborg says we feel this pulling out of the spirit from the body. He actually describes it in Secrets of Heaven 179. He says, as soon as the internal organs of the body grow cold, our living substances, wherever they are located, are separated out. This would happen even if they were lost in the thousand interlinking passages of a labyrinth. The Lord's mercy, which I had already experienced as a living and powerful pole, is so strong that it could not leave any living element behind. And it's fascinating because he seems to almost be indicating an interplay of matter and spirit, that that he's not saying physical, the, the physical stuff of the body, but the spiritual stuff is somehow affected by that. He does it other times in his writing, talk about the outermost physical elements actually staying with us. So whatever it is, it's unaffected. It doesn't matter how you die. It doesn't matter where you're put or if you're cremated. or It doesn't matter. God can pull the soul out and bring it. And that that pulling or that force of bringing us into the next life is in a lot of ways like the force that brings us into this world. The, the, the process of dying has a lot of parallels with the process of being born. I mean, essentially, we're, we're exiting the womb to come into this life, just like we exit this life to come into the next life. So for our final comparison, our final uh, thing we can learn about the process on the other side from this, 
from the, what we were experiencing in this life, we decided to talk to somebody who had been around a lot of birth, because really, if, if the correspondence holds up, the people who are helping babies come into the world are doing what the angels are doing to us, the angels we're about to meet in the next section. So this is an interview with someone who is a doula, which is somebody who helps a couple uh, get ready, get prepared to have a baby, pain coping techniques, all this kind of stuff. And this, I think, is a good insight into the nature of the angels that must accompany spiritual birth, because you get a chance here to see what do you need to be like in order to effectively help uh, a baby be born and help the couple. So this is what uh, she had to say. Mostly what I learned in uh, my classes for becoming a doula was pain coping techniques, how to be with a person and what would help. Basically, movement is a big part of giving birth. An interesting piece is the hula dance that we know from Hawaii actually originated as a birth dance um, because movement of the body helps the baby move down into the position to be born. So. Learning that was an important part. Also, working with other people, I had to work with clients before I got certified to make sure that I had the personality where I could truly listen to what was going on with them and that they could trust me, that I was a safe place and I would be a strength for them going through the process. So the love is essential, but it's not all. There is there is technique, there is knowledge. You, you have to have the love and wisdom together, just like the heart and lungs that we were showing here. And for Kay, there was a very obvious connection that was made between these births that she was helping to do and the spiritual birth we all undergo. So this is what she had to say about that. My um, co-leader, when I was a professional doula, we did these birthing classes, and she said to me um, at one point, you know, why don't we do birth and death? Like, let's do both of them. And I said, no way. Um, you know, birth is about bringing someone into the world. Death is about ushering them out. Like, you get the prize when <laughs> you have a baby, when you usher someone out. Um, it's all the same mechanics, but the outcome is very different. Um, we aren't enlightened enough to know that that's a great thing when they're, you know, when you, they've actually birthed into the other world. But the components are all the same. And then doggone it, a year after she had said, hey, let's do this, she passed away. So I imagine she's being a doula, bringing people into the other world on the other side. So let's meet these, these spiritual doulas. You know, we talked about how we can work with these angels that are helping us. We can learn about them based on what we do here. And Swedenborg met them face to face and describes what they're going to be like for all of us when we get there. So let's, uh, let's meet him for ourselves, part three. And that's not just an adjective, that word heavenly there. there that's a technical categorization. Swedenborg describes levels of angels or, or different types of angels, which we've done shows about essentially heavenly angels are the, the deepest angels, the most feeling, love-oriented angels, and this is who greets everyone, and Swedenborg got to experience this. We're going to pick back up with his story. This is from Heaven and Hell 449. I was brought into a state in which my physical senses were inoperative, very much then like the state of people who are dying. I noticed that my physical breathing was almost suspended 
with a deeper breathing, a breathing of the spirit continuing, along with a very slight and silent physical one. At first, then, a connection was established between my heartbeat and the heavenly kingdom, because that kingdom corresponds to the human heart. I also saw angels from that kingdom, some at a distance, and two sitting close to my head. The effect was to take away all my own affection, but to leave me in possession of thought and perception. I remained in this state for several hours. Then the spirits who were around me gradually drew away, thinking that I was dead. I sensed a sweet odor like that of an embalmed body, for when heavenly angels are present, anything having to do with a corpse smells sweet. When spirits sense this, they cannot come near. This is also how evil spirits are kept away from our spirit when we are being admitted into eternal life. The angels who were sitting beside my head were silent, simply sharing their thoughts with mine. When these are accepted by the deceased, the angels know that the person's spirit is ready to be led out of the body. They accomplished this sharing of thoughts by looking into my face. This is actually how thoughts are shared in heaven. I noticed that at first the angels were checking to see whether my thoughts were like those of dying individuals who are normally thinking about eternal life. They wanted to keep my mind in these thoughts. I was later told that as the body is breathing its last, our spirit is kept in its final thought until eventually it comes back to the thoughts that flowed from our basic or ruling affection in the world. Especially, I was enabled to perceive and even to feel that there was a pull, a kind of drawing out of the deeper levels of my mind and therefore of my spirit from my body. And I was told that this was being done by the Lord and is what brings about our resurrection. And he left his webcam on the whole time. That was that was Swedenborg there. Um, so you noticed what the angels were doing. A lot of it was about thought management, thought and feeling management. They were sort of breaking these old ties that we have just temporarily because you're in a protected space there. You need to, to make this transition safely. There needs to be, just like in a hospital room, they keep everything clean, you know, they, or, or, or if you're birthing at home, they make sure that you're in, a, you're in a good position, you're not going to fall off something. There's this element of safety there, and angels spiritually are keeping their regular crowd away from you so that you can just have this love that you're surrounded in to make this journey safely. Uh, there is this double account thing we were talking about before. We are going to show you in Secrets of Heaven, he tells this same story, but there's all these details that he doesn't include in the Heaven and Hell version that we thought were worth mentioning. So we're going to go back step by step and take a look at those. Uh, first, let's talk about the angels that appear near the heart that he mentions. He says this in the Secrets of Heaven version. Heavenly angels were present, occupying the area of my heart so that I seemed to be at one with them in my heart. We were so close that at last hardly anything of my own remained to me besides thought and the perception that comes with thought. This lasted several hours. In this way, I was removed from communication with spirits in the world of spirits. They assumed I had departed bodily life. And that's an interesting wrinkle in both accounts, that the spirits around him, uh, you know, think, okay, he, he's died, so they're going to we're going to move away. For some reason, they know all right, we're, we're not part of this party for a little while, at least. Moving on, the, uh, the angels that appear near his head. There were two angels sitting at my head. I perceive that this is so for everyone. So everybody gets the same treatment there. They were completely silent, communicating their thoughts only by the face, so that I felt something like a new face come over me. 
two new faces, in fact, since there were two angels. So if you ever had that feeling that two new faces were coming over you, when the angels perceive that their faces are being mirrored, they know the person is dead. After recognizing their faces on me, they caused certain changes in the area around my mouth and in this way shared their thoughts with me. So there's the mechanism of thought sharing. To speak through the area around someone else's mouth is common for heavenly angels. I was able to perceive their thought speech. So it must be some kind of correspondence or how the mind and or how the spirit and mind are connected or the thoughts in, in the mouth, you know, because speech is associated with thought and with breath. Somehow by manipulating that, they can introduce these concepts, and did so to Swedenborg. Next, they, it says there was a protective fragrance. This is what he says in this one. I smelled a sweet fragrance like that from an embalmed corpse. Whenever a heavenly angels are present, the scent of a dead body comes across as sweet. If evil spirits smell it, they cannot come near. All the while I remained at one with the heavenly angels, held in a fairly close embrace in the area around my heart, as I perceived and also felt in my pulse." So this, again, this is a protection that's being deployed here, and it's through scent. And is this why there are so many cultures that do this embalming, you dressing corpses with some kind of sweet smell, because they know about this spiritual phenomenon on the other side. He talked about being held in particular thoughts, and this is what he added in Secrets of Heaven. Angels hold us in any thoughts we have at the moment of death that are devout and holy. When people are dying, most of them are thinking about eternal life. Few are thinking about their salvation or happiness. So the angels keep them in that thought about eternal life. The heavenly angels hold us in this thought quite a while before withdrawing and leaving us to the spiritual angels who then become our companions. Meanwhile, we are fully, if dimly, meanwhile, we fully, if dimly believe that we are still alive in our bodies. So we, we, we don't, it hasn't quite sunk in yet. Uh, then this, the telepathic speaking that he talks about, the heavenly angels sitting at my head remained with me a while after I was revived without speaking except in their silent way. From their thought speech, I learned that they had completely discounted all my misconceptions and falsities. It was not that they ridiculed them, they appeared not to care about them at all. They speak by thoughts without sound. This is the way they start to talk with the souls whom they accompany in the beginning." A total, so a total lack of judgment. They almost ignored everything wrong with Swedenborg, not in, in some kind of dismissive way, but just much more interested in what's good about you. And then finally, here's something that we didn't read about the transition from heavenly to spiritual. People revived in this way by the heavenly angels are still experiencing a dim sort of life. This initial period seems to be a dreamlike kind of state, which is why people don't always remember it as they get further into the spiritual world. When it is time to pass the people on to the spiritual angels, the heavenly angels wait a little and then withdraw once the spiritual angels have arrived. I was also shown how the latter enable the reviving soul to receive the use of light. When heavenly angels are present with the revived, they do not leave them, they love each one. But if our soul is such that we can no longer enjoy the company of heavenly angels, we long to get away from them at which point spiritual angels arrive and give us the gift of light. Until then, we do not have the use of our sight, only of our thoughts. So we can stay in that initial party as long as we want, uh, and it's really only our, um, our preferences and what, what we can really tolerate, you know, what we can really stand that leads us from part to part. So that's, that's an essential part of this whole thing, is we're never rejected or pushed out of any heavenly state. It's only 
you're not totally comfortable here because the, the the heavenly stuff that can be pretty difficult for us to to receive uh, for long periods of time if it's not something that we've been used to, you know, in our life in the world. So they're conscious of that and they say, okay, well, here maybe you want to do this uh, this spiritual stuff. And so they pass this off to these spiritual angels, which is exactly where we're going to head in part four. So in this second phase, the spiritual angel phase, the spiritual would be the lung side of things, it would be the, the intellect side of things, you're going to see how the experience differs uh, with the spiritual angels, and the, f- the first difference is that thoughts really start to come into play. At first there was this dreamlike sort of emotional state, but now we really begin to wake up in that sense, and Swedenborg describes this in Heaven and Hell 450. When heavenly angels are with people who have been awakened, they do not leave them because they love everyone. But some spirits are simply unable to be in the company of heavenly angels very long and want them to leave. When this happens, angels from the Lord's spiritual kingdom arrive, through whom we are granted the use of light, since before this we could not see anything but could only think. I was also shown how this is done. It seemed as though the angels rolled back a covering from my left eye toward the center of my nose so that my eye was opened and able to see. To the spirit, it seems as though this were actually happening, but it is only apparently so. As this covering seemed to be rolled back, I could see a kind of clear but dim light, like the light we see through our eyelids when we are first waking up. It seemed to me as though this clear, dim light had a heavenly color to it, but I was later told that this varies. After that, it felt as though something were being rolled gently off my face, and once this was done, I had access to spiritual thought. This rolling something off the face is an appearance, for it represents the fact that we are moving from natural thinking to spiritual thinking. Angels take the greatest care to shield the awakening person from any concept that does not taste of love. Then they tell the individual that he or she is a spirit. In case you were wondering, the part where the covering is peeled off of his left eye that is where this channel got its name from. Uh, that was the inspiration for the thing. It, and you'll, as you'll see here, it's not the only potential name that came from this section of Swedenborg, but that's what it's about. It's about this awakening process here, uh, where you get this use of spiritual sight, and this lets you come in to spiritual life uh, through the learning side. Since that's, we're trying to disseminate knowledge here, we thought that would be a fitting uh, branding. But enough about us. Uh, in the Secrets of Heaven description of that, uh, he talks about uh, a sh- a sh- this this color scheme that appeared to him. He said it was a shadowy something, the color of the sky with a tiny star in it. And, but then he wrote, but I heard this varies from person to person. So he seems to be conscious of certain elements are universal and certain are individual. He talks about everybody has two angels, but everything else can vary in between, and he seemed to sort of know the difference because he remarks on which things seem to to fall into which category. So let's continue. This is Secrets of Heaven 186. This is when we start to live, so this spiritual phase, and at first things are happy and cheerful, since we feel we have entered on eternal life. This stage is represented by a brilliant light with a beautiful golden tinge, symbolizing the fact that our first stage of life is heavenly, with a touch of the spiritual. 
Then we are welcomed into a community of good spirits. The thought is planted in our minds that we will be taught about truth and goodness. Then some gently rising paths become visible. Okay, that was another one. When I, when I was setting out to make the name for this channel back 40,000 years ago when we started, 2011, I think it was, um, I was like, what, what would be a good phrase for a Swedenborgian channel? I was just looking through... Um, Heaven, no, it's, it's through this account, I think through Secrets of Heaven, and we, I came across Off the Left Eye, Gently Rising Paths, a few others, and what's it ended up being, for better or worse, it was Off the Left Eye. Enough about that. <laughs> Symbolizing the fact that we will be led gradually toward heaven by our knowledge of truth and goodness and an acknowledgement of our own nature. Unless we acknowledge who we are and learn what is true and good, we can never be led there. So everything in the spiritual world that you see externally is a correspondence, it's a manifestation or representation of internal or, or spiritual processes. So let's look at these paths that rise up uh, in the spiritual world uh, and what they, what they symbolize. So you have them, they appear, they're just as solid and real as regular paths, but they symbolize or they're, they're an effigy of learning about ourselves and learning about truth and goodness, because that's the only thing that can make you go higher. Like, it's, it's a state of mind is locomotion in the spiritual world, so only by learning these things can we move up a path. So that's, you see these paths, and they are an indicator of the real movement that's going on, which is this learning that's teaching us. So these spiritual angels are very teaching focused, and we hear about them a little more in Secrets of Heaven 314. Uh, after our revived selves, our souls, have been restored to the light, so that we can look around us, the spiritual angels mentioned here perform every service for us that we can possibly desire in our new state. They teach us about the things that exist in the other life, but only so far as we can comprehend. And to anyone who has been a believer and has an interest, they also show the grand and amazing sights of heaven, and has an interest, like, nah, I don't want to see the grand and amazing sights of heaven. But if the revived person or soul is not the kind who wants to learn, he or she then wants to leave the angel's company. The angels are quick to perceive this, because in the next life, all the ideas involved in our thinking are shared generally. When we are eager to part with the angels, they do not leave us, but we disconnect from them." Angels love everyone, want nothing more than to be helpful to us, teach us, and take us up to heaven. That is their highest pleasure. And we're not really talking about heaven and hell and the divide there and everything. We've done that in other shows. But Swedenborg, that same principle is the whole hell thing, meaning we want to get away from what's good. We don't want to be near what's good. But Swedenborg even says that a person who has gone as far away as they can, you know, out, out way out into what he calls hell, still any angel, he says, would gladly trade places with you if it meant you would go into heaven. This, we love you, we don't want you to go anywhere, that continues forever. Angels never give up on somebody. So let's look at this, this teaching uh, again that, that they do here. Um, he describes all kinds of centers of learning and, and things that, that are conducive to the expanding of the mind. They, these angels serve us, they teach us, and they show us amazing sights. It's not, not all just like, eat your vegetables. There's, there's fun stuff. Let's go on a day trip and see this awesome stuff. I think about when I'm somewhere really cool, like I'm on some island and I know that there's coral reefs around. How ex or when I was in uh, I was in Yellowstone National Park, like I knew there was bison out there to see. How excited I was to get up and see that stuff! Um, I, I bet that that's what it is. Like, oh, where are we going today? This is going to be cool. So not so shabby. If we choose to leave that, though, if we're just now, this is not still. I, I can't quite breathe. That's fine. The next step then goes like this: Secrets of Heaven three sixteen. 
When we as souls break off with the spiritual angels in this way, we are next welcomed by good spirits, and in their company every possible service is again performed for us. However, if our life in the world was such that we cannot stay among the good, once more we want to get away from them. The process repeats continually until we come into contact with the type of people whose life in the world was in total agreement with ours. Among them we seem to find our own life. Then, surprising to say, we live the same kind of life with them as we had lived in the body. As we sink back into that life, we experience a new beginning. Some of us move on from there toward hell after a fairly long time, and some after a fairly short time. Those of us who had believed in the Lord, however, from the time of that new beginning are gradually led to heaven. Some reach heaven more slowly and some more quickly. And it's a confusing way that he puts it there, because he says, those who believe in the Lord. So it sounds like it's an intellectual thing, you just have to have had the right religion on earth. But if you read Swedenborg at length, it's the exact opposite of that. This belief in the Lord is a, is a belief in, or a life by what God is, which is mutual love. Um, which is humility, service. So really, he has these other quotes, when you get to heaven, nobody asks what your faith was, they just want to know what your life is like. Uh, So he'll do that to you sometimes, he'll say something that sounds like something else, and that's why we have this show, to clear stuff like that. This whole phase that we're talking about here, though, with all these angels, it only lasts a few days. This is not the long-term heaven experience what happens next, we've documented in this show, that that's two shows worth at least, and they're right here. We talk about uh, the world of spirits, the encounter, the first place we go, how you end up in heaven or hell. This is the grand journey or the grand digestion, as some people call it, but you can go watch those now. We want to stay focused on this subject. Um, and we we uh, want to just do one more section about the, the fear and, and where that can go from here. However, um, we asked last time if you guys would send in little clips, because we're sitting here doing this show, giving you all this Swedenborg, and Swedenborg this, duh, duh, duh. is it doing any good? Are we helping? Is it inspiring anything in your own lives? We wanted you to send your little clips in, and we got our first one this week. It was from Bonnie in Colorado in the USA. Thanks so much. And she had uh, an insight based on some of the gardening correspondences, and she was kind enough to to share it with us. So please do the same and get yours in. But here's what, what Bonnie had to say. The story I'm about to share is basically a gardening story. We live on a large piece of property, and We've done some gardening around the house, but the majority of it is just left to nature. The weeding can be just overwhelming, and I've never really figured out how to even take care of the places that I've tried to tame with the weeds, because it's so large. And uh, a lot of times while I'm out here, I ask God for help in dealing with the weed problem. And, uh, of course, I can't imagine how we would actually do that. But, a few years ago, we started to get hordes of grasshoppers. And they eat everything. And once they've eaten everything that they kind of like, they start to eat the weeds. So, basically, they're like little goats eating everything. And they are a bad thing, but... I've learned from Emanuel Swedenborg that everything, God doesn't let a bad thing happen unless he can make something good from it. So, um, basically, the good from it is that the weeds are getting eaten, 
and I also noticed that this is in our language where every cloud has a silver light. So I love that little clip. I love the idea of um, hearing from you guys, what's it doing in your lives, the, the message. Uh, so thanks again for that. Hope to hear from more of you soon. Part five, we want to somehow lessen the fear of death. I mean, we think that, that, that there's nothing really to fear about the whole thing. But where does fear of death come from? Initially, it's two things. It's, it's fear of the unknown and fear of the pain, uh, some kind of suffering or loneliness that can accompany death. Well, the fear of the unknown, Hope I think that the reason Sweden, things like Swedenborg, all these near-death experiences are allowed and are happening, is to give us, no, to try to make it the known. So once we understand the process, especially because if they're all right about it, the process is, is really it's a, better than a lot of things we go through in this world. Uh, that takes away that side, but still people can worry about the suffering side. How, how will I die? Will it hurt? And we want to spend a little time looking at what people are saying about that the separation from people is painful, no, no doubt about it. We're never going to, not anytime soon, not grieve when somebody passes. And maybe, maybe even in a perfect scenario, you'd still have this bittersweet experience. But it may be that the, the thick, thick veil is starting to dissipate, that the veil is thinning between the two worlds, because all these people are having these spiritual experiences. And maybe we can help that along uh, by trying to create the same kind of heaven conditions here that exists on the other side. If you want to be a part of that, check out our show, How to Create Heaven on Earth. Uh, and, you know, that's a little on Swedenborg's message about what we can do here to try to get into that. All right, so we're going to look at some quotes here about this. Uh, let's take a look at our first one. Oh, oh this is about um, uh, injury, uh, that, that injury and disease can be painful, but perhaps death is not. So among the case histories collected by Dr. Robert Crookle, so this is a book called Life After Death, which is kind of a, yeah, a study on these experiences, is the account by an American doctor, R.B. Hoot of Indiana, who seems to have been endowed with a rare degree of psychic vision. At the deathbed of his aunt, he claims to have seen this astral body hanging suspended horizontally a few feet above the physical counterpart. It was serene and in repose. But the physical body was active in reflex movements and subconscious writhings of pain. I saw the features plainly. They were very similar to the physical face, except that a glow of peace and vigor was expressed instead of age and pain. I got a comment on one of our videos uh, from somebody who was feeling bad because it was their responsibility to try to, to take care of uh, their mom uh, when she was dying, and it, it seemed like uh, she was in pain as she was passing. And I really hope that, that you're out there and you see this one because um, even if the body is having reflexes, it doesn't mean the spirit is, and that there's multiple sources that are that seem to be indicating that. So that's the, and that's from a disease side of things, but even in a, what could be a more extreme case, if someone's a victim of a violent crime, it may be they're not going through what we think they are. This is from a book called The Dove at the Window, which is a collection of accounts from people. This is someone who had her friend murdered. I had a friend who was murdered while at her counseling job in a prison. When I heard the news, I was filled with instant instinctive horror. I refer refused to learn any details, but I already knew the sort of crimes her clients had been convicted of. That night I went to bed shaken and vulnerable. 
In the night I heard beautiful music. It had a bell-like quality, yet was not earthly. There in a simple robe, kneeling above and in front of me, was my friend. She was grinning, her head slightly tilted back. She was holding out both hands, cupped together like a bowl. They were overflowing with huge diamonds. In some telepathic way, she let me know that even while those terrible last earthly experiences were happening, they were transformed by the Lord into dazzling, rainbow-flashing jewels. Then she laughed, a chuckle that teased me because I was still stuck in materialistic mental bondage, and she was free. Her gentle chiding did more to lighten me than a thousand sentiments. And it seems like this theme of the body, even if the body is suffering, the spirit isn't, is echoed everywhere. We even found it in a, an account of a near-death experience on YouTube. This is by Yvonne Sneeden. We just uh, wrote down some of what she said here, if you want to enter that link in or just probably search her name. I felt the organs of my body shutting down. This is when she was having a massive physical trauma. And simultaneously, I felt myself leaving my body. So I didn't feel the pain of the body shutting down. And that's also sometimes, it happens a lot as well, people that are dying actually, even when they have a car crash, the body comes out before the trauma. And I think we wrote it just as it is, but uh, in context, I think that's just a, a misspeak for the spirit comes out before the trauma. And that's something we also had reported by a guest of ours. We did a whole show that was called, Does It Hurt to Die? It's hard to remember which way to point. Does It Hurt to Die? And there we talked to Tom Rose, who was a paramedic around a lot of these situations and in follow-up counseling with the people. And he said that in these greatest traumas, people are not feeling what we think we feel based on their own report. So check that episode out as well. So there's that side of the pain being taken care of. And then if you're worried about that person that you love being confused or uh, not or lonely on the other side, we are we are cared for in a lot of ways there that we've been uh, discussing, but also we're, we're given realizations that help us to ease the transition. This is from Heaven and Hell 452. I have talked with some people on the third day after their death. I talked with three whom I had known in the world and told them that their funeral, their funeral services were now being planned so that their bodies could be buried. When they heard me say that it was so that they could be buried, they were struck with a kind of bewilderment. They said that they were alive and that people were burying what had been useful to them in the world. Later on, they were utterly amazed at the fact that, that they had been, while they had been living in their bodies, they had not believed in this kind of life after death. So very quickly, they're in this new mindset of, it's fine, that was just a little thing, I, I'm okay, even though they know it's a big deal for us, but at least we can know they're okay. And there's a, another story uh, that Swedenborg gives about meeting someone who was initially kind of confused, like, where am I, and, and the comfort that he received. So this is from Secrets of Heaven 318. A man came and spoke to me who, as certain signs indicated, had recently departed from life. At first, he did not realize where he was, supposing himself to be in the world. I then informed him that he was in the next life and that he no longer had any possessions, house, money, and so on, but was in another realm where he lacked everything he had owned in the world. Filled with anxiety over this, he did not know what direction to go or where he would live. But I told him that the Lord alone looks out for him and for everyone. Afterward, I left him alone to think as he had thought in the world. He started to wonder what he should do now, being destitute of everything that had allowed him to stay alive. Still laboring under this anxiety, he was transferred to the company of spirits with a heavenly nature. They were in the vicinity of the heart, and everything he wanted, whatever it was, they helped him with. 
This done, he was again left alone, and under the inspiration of charity, began to consider how he could repay such great kindness. All this showed that in the life of the body, he had possessed the charity that belongs to faith. As a result, he was lifted up into heaven instantly. So we're just trying to communicate this knowledge that was gathered by other people that was gathered by Swedenborg in the hopes that it can lessen some of our ang- our own anxiety around death and our anxiety for the people that, that go through it, that we love. Hey, it's all right. They're fine. We're going to be fine. We're all going to be together again. So hopefully spreading this will will take some of this sting out of this thing that we all encounter, uh, you know, in the people we love, and eventually we'll encounter on our own someday. So if you think getting this knowledge out there would be helpful, please like and subscribe, because especially the both of those factor into YouTube. So the more that you guys do that, the more that this gets out there into YouTube, and this, who knows, this, the, the ideas in this particular broadcast might be just what somebody was looking for when they're dealing with their own kind of tragedy. So thanks so much, everybody, for watching and for being a part of it. We're about to get to the questions, but first, uh, this is a program done by a nonprofit. We can only spend time to make stuff like this because of the donations you've all been giving. Here's a little bit on our philosophy and, and why we do things the way we do. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, what did you think? Let's get to your comments and your questions uh, on this subject. I said we'd do it. We're really going to do it. Let's look at the first one. This is Mary. Why does the Christian Bible not reassure us about this crossing over into heaven or the other side? I think that we talked about this last week. We did an episode, no, two weeks ago, we did an episode called End Times and Jesus Christ. Is that the one where Swedenborg essentially says that everything was made cryptic as a protection? Because if you look at the Bible throughout history, how many atrocities have been committed based on the Bible? How many people have taken the Bible and tried to use it and to say, this is actually saying something really bad? And not everybody, there's been plenty of good, but there's been all this bad. And Swedenborg says, if the bare truth had been laid out in the Old and New Testaments because of how it was, it would have been corrupted and manipulated and destroyed. Uh, But because it was in this cryptic language, uh, it was a protection. Really take a look at... at, uh, also our show, What the Bible Is, for a little bit more on why it had to be like it did, the, those two those two programs. But it's frustrating, it would be nice, but I, I think that this near-death experience stuff is coming to us now, and this Swedenborg and other, others like it, to, to give us that comfort, because maybe now we're, we're ready to know plainly. Even Jesus says, there, the, the time is coming when I'll tell you plainly about the Father. You know, this is, I'll really just give it to you straight. Maybe we're getting to the point where God can, can tell us what's up. Like, you can't always explain things to a kid, but is the human race maturing? So those are my thoughts on it. It's a great question. Next one. Sole purpose. Last November, my 29-year-old son died suddenly. 
While waiting outside for paramedics to save his life, I begged my son to choose to stay here with me. Did he have a choice, as NDE stories states? So um, that must have been incredibly hard. I mean, to to lose somebody and to have it happen right in front of you and suddenly. So I, I'm, I'm really glad you were willing to share that, and I'm sorry for everything that you went through. And no, I don't think it was him choosing. I, I think the near-death experience is different. This is my opinion. As we said in the beginning of the show, the near-death experience is a different thing than the actual death experience. Swedenborg never, in his account of it, said the angels choose if you come back or you don't. I do know, I know plenty of people think that that, that is, and you do seem to be presented with this choice, although I know somebody who had a near-death experience, and she said she was given this choice, but that it wasn't really a choice, like it seemed like a choice, and that maybe there needs to be some element of freedom in there, but I don't think that we are, everybody choose, do I die now or don't I? Because what if somebody just kept not, oh, I don't want to die now, I don't want, wouldn't you have somebody who was 300 years old? There's there's much more providence moving us. I I don't think that he was like, oh, I don't, I'm leaving. I'm sure that he felt for you, um, but there was a greater process, you know, so no, I, I don't think that he said, well, pros and cons, I'm, I'm going to go. No, I, I, I think that if he, if he could have stayed, he would have. Um, so that, that's my personal opinion on it. Again, thank you for being willing to, to share your story with us. Let's look at the next one. This is from Potter. What would Swedenborg think was more important? Experience or the moving of the Spirit in Quaker terms or the Bible and church traditions? Well, Swedenborg is an interesting mix of those two things. Um, he both quotes the Bible extensively and makes it a really, really important part of his work and bases things on it, and he also quotes experience extensively. I think that it would be different for different people. You know, that that he has this quote, um, nobody, not even an angel, can know all the different ways in which a person accepts the Lord. I think there are some people who, who could only really get this connection through some kind of experience. Uh, there are other people who need to learn it through concepts. Uh, he does, however, you know, to, to take a different... I never... I always guess at what people are really asking. You never can know exactly what somebody wants to know, but another way I could look at that question is, um, you know, d- which is more important for our own spiritual development. Even though Swedenborg was having all these spiritual experiences, um, he didn't say it was necessary to have, like, a spiritual experience in order to progress, to regenerate. Um, he, he did say, we all need to learn these religious truths and apply them to life. Really, that learning what's right and doing it is the most potent thing. Um, so, but then again, yeah, there's all kinds of different paths to learning that, um, and different people learn different learning styles. So I would say, I'd hesitate to say that for that I can know for sure which is the best way for you or for anyone else. Um, I guess that's why there's such a plurality of devices that allow people to have this. Swedenborg even says the different religions are all coexisting because they're teaching tools that are accommodated to particular people uh, and particular types of mindsets. So those are a few scattered thoughts on that. Great question. Let's look at another one. Jeannie. Swedenborg had many out-of-body experiences or spiritual experiences, but what about allowing spirits to speak through you? Is it dangerous to speak or be a medium? Good question. I don't think Swedenborg ever recounts 
being spoken through by a spirit. He is um, in touch with spirits in just about every conceivable way, meaning he he talks about being writing stuff down, and spirits are commenting on what he's writing. Put that, don't put that, oh, I don't want to put that, although he wouldn't really follow their direction because he had this higher authority he was answering to, but he talked about walking down a street and having spirits want him to buy particular things. There was a lot about that. He doesn't ever describe being spoken through. Um, Is it dangerous to speak or to be a medium? I can't say that I... I know that for sure. He he did he did seem to indicate that it's dangerous to just start to go into the spiritual world um, for without knowing what you're doing there, because just like you wouldn't go into a city here, I think it's got to be. Um, what's the intent? What's the purpose? You know, I, I would imagine with this huge world of spiritual contact that it's happening, there's got to be good stuff coming through. I don't know. I don't know about categorically. Um, You know, I think there's probably good and bad mediums. You know, there's probably some people who are faking it. There's some people who are having genuine experience. There's some people who are having, you know, contact with negative stuff. There's some people having contact with good stuff. So I don't know if I can give a blanket answer to that. You know, I don't want to get sued or something. Just kidding. Uh, But you you see what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to know something uh, of that magnitude. But um, in general... I guess this goes a little back to the last question about do you need to have spiritual experiences? If if it you know you don't want to pursue it too intensely if you're not having it, you know, because maybe there's a, a reason there's not that order yet where you're having these experiences. Um, but if it's just coming to you, you know, love God, love your neighbor. Is it leading towards love God and love the neighbor? If so, cautiously, but maybe go for it. I'm not going to say either way. Cool. Thanks. But do we have one more? I think we have one more. Oh, two more. Let's do two more. Jen, do we, the living, ever really feel loved ones around us, or is it wishful thinking? I think yes. I think it absolutely is loved ones around us. Swedenborg says the, the some people think of the spiritual world like a bird flying off in the distance, but like off way into the ether, he says. But Actually, it's like a bir- beautiful bird of paradise flying so close to so close to our face that its wingtips brushes our eye. You know that, that that's how present the spiritual world is. Um, and there's just the accounts. Even you saw Robin in this episode talking about those connections at the end of like. There's no way that stuff is all fake. You know, some people will say, "No, that's not that's not real." The Bible doesn't say it. But but Swedenborg describes a world in which angels are always around us, and why wouldn't? it be our loved ones as well. So I I think if you feel like it's them, it's probably them. To me, there's something, I think, sacred about that. I don't think there's a lot of deception going on there spiritually, as long as it's leading towards good things, and they're not like, all right, yeah, this is me, your brother, now go do this dangerous thing. You know, if you're getting this loving feeling and there's something feels like it's good happening, I, I think that's really what it is. So there's that question. All right, let's look at our last one for the night. Jim, Christianity teaches us that after we die, we essentially take a dirt nap until the resurrection. Is this true? Not according to Swedenborg. According to Swedenborg, it's totally false. Uh, It's a misinterpretation of the correspondential language of the Bible. Uh, As Dr. Jonathan Rose said, survival of death is immediate, something, and permanent. I forget what the middle thing is. Personal, personal, immediate, personal, and permanent. Swedenborg actually describes in death, you have this dreamlike state for a while first, but you're waking up like, you know, someone who died, 
uh, a few days ago is there. They're already started on the journey. That Swedenborg goes into detail as to why that he considers that to be a falsity within the Christian tradition. Um, and so you can you can find that in his works as well. But uh, yeah, everybody's there. There's a big party, and hopefully we're all gonna hang out together there someday. So thank you everyone for being part of this little party. We're going to continue on next week. We got a show where we're going to discuss where thoughts come from. Have you ever had thoughts? Don't you want to know what goes into making up a thought and why some thoughts are like they are? Why do we have this weird mental landscape? Swedenborg had some fascinating insight. We're going to dig deep into a couple experiences he had where he saw the source and the building blocks of thoughts. So I'll hopefully see you all then. Thanks for hanging. (music) 